you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. We just sang in that wonderful hymn there in the second verse, One holy name she blesses partakes one holy food. This is that holy food now. The Word of God. As we come together, Greg and I were praying before the service. Greg prayed that the Lord would set the table by His Word and that we would then feast on it. That we would partake together one holy food. That's what we do together now. So Colossians chapter 2, where we come to what is the central passage of this letter, verses 6 and 7. Our passage is only one sentence, but it is rich with instruction and encouragement. So let's get right to it. We're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2 as we read so that we have the context, but our focus will most definitely be on verses 6 and 7. So Please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving." Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, help us as we come to gather around uh, this, this table of the Word of God to hear the truth about Christ. Please, Father, give us the humility that is necessary to put our lives underneath the Word of God and to acknowledge that what You have written here in this book is indeed authoritative and true and demands our allegiance. Grant us that humility. Father, also grant us encouragement from this that we might grow firm in the faith and that we might stand firm, Father, in the day of testing. Father, grant us grace to believe what it is that You have revealed. Lord, and please allow Your, work to do it, allow your Word to do its work among us today applied by Your Spirit to bring glory to Christ and to build up His church in the truth that we might all endure to the final day when the Lord Jesus returns. And we pray that that would be soon, and we ask that you would give us grace now to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you read through the New Testament, you come across a number of vivid images of what it means to live the Christian life. Jesus, in John 15, speaks of the vine and the branch. Believers are the vine. While Jesus Himself is is the branch to live the Christian life, we must be rooted in Him. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 that we read just a few moments ago speaks of living stones being built together into a spiritual house. Again, believers are those living stones, while Christ Jesus is the cornerstone upon which we stand to live the Christian life. We must be built on the cornerstone. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians speaks of a body with many members all working together 
in connection with the head. Believers are those individual members of the body while the Lord Jesus Himself is the head to live the Christian life. We must be established in Him. We must be connected with Him. All through the New Testament, there are these vivid, memorable images. The vine and the branch. The living stones and the cornerstone. The body and the head. Each image illustrates what it means to live the Christian life. Here in Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul decides to take nearly all of those images and jam them together into one sentence. One expertly crafted, insightful sentence. This text vividly illustrates the reality of the Christian life. Paul picks up a number of those familiar New Testament images. Paul picks up Jesus' image of the vine and the branch when he says in verse 7 that we are rooted in Christ. Paul employs Peter's imagery when he says that we are being built up in Christ like living stones. We're being built up. And then to keep things interesting, Paul adds his own image, most likely from the Psalms, that envisions God establishing the faith of His people, rooted, built up, established. Like the rest of the New Testament, Paul uses these powerful images to picture for us the reality of the Christian life. But in the midst of this familiar, vivid imagery, Paul does make a unique point here in in this passage. For Paul, the Christian life is a Christ-centered life. That's Paul's point in this text. Verses 6 and 7 of Colossians 2 show us that the Christian life is a Christ-centered life. Rooted, built up, established. Paul's using all of those images to help you see that the Christian life is a Christ-centered life. If you think about the context of the letter, then you'll quickly see why Paul would make this his central point. The Colossians had begun well in following the Lord Jesus. They had received the Gospel from Epaphras, and they had believed it by faith. But over time, some folks within the congregation began to insist on the need for other ideas and new practices. These so-called teachers were not denying Christ. They merely wanted to add to Christ. And you can understand how this would have appealed to the Colossian church. The Colossians, like any other group of believers, wanted to grow. They wanted to press further into the Christian life. They wanted to know more of God. They wanted to experience more of God's fullness in their lives. Again, what group of Christians wouldn't want those things? I trust that's why you're here today, because you want to grow. Who wouldn't want those things? And that's how these false teachers got their foot in the door, so to speak. They latched on to that legitimate desire for growth, and they twisted it in an attempt to undermine the sufficiency of Christ. They latched on to that desire for growth, and then they tried to take Christ out of the center. And that's why Paul writes this letter. More specifically, that's why Paul writes these two verses. This one sentence. More than any other place in the letter, verses 6 and 7 summarize Paul's aim in writing. Why did he write this letter? Read these verses. These verses are the heart of Colossians. The turning point even of all that Paul writes. Friends, it's not an overstatement to say that if you understand verses 6 and 7, then you understand the whole letter. You get the whole letter. These verses are that important. That foundational. And again, the point of these key verses is what we said just a moment ago. The Christian life is a Christ-centered 
Christ-centered life. Paul wants his readers to understand that the Christian life is not merely related to Jesus, like something like cause and effect. It's not merely related to Jesus. The Gospel is not step one to being a Christian, followed by something other than Christ. No, Paul's point is both simple and crucial. Christ must remain at the center of the Christian life, or else we may be doing a lot of other things, but we're not following Him. We're not following Jesus. Like a tree with its roots, or like a building on its foundation, or like a body with its head, believers must live each day in connection with Christ. Of course, the question then becomes, what does this Christ-centered life look like? Well, in one sense, friends, Paul's going to spend the rest of the letter answering that question. So come back next Sunday, and I'll tell you more. But here in verses 6 and 7, Paul does give us a preview, so to speak. It's a preview that prepares us for what's to come. If you look at these two verses, you'll see that they have really four parts. And from those four parts, we can see four marks, we might say, of a Christ-centered life. Four marks that preview for us what it means to live a Christ-centered life. Let's consider each one together. The first comes from the opening of verse 6. The Christ-centered life begins with a confession of Christ's Lordship. It begins with a confession of Christ's Lordship. Notice the opening phrase of verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord... Friends, that statement looks back to all that Paul has said so far in the letter. To confess Christ Jesus the Lord is to confess that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It is to declare that Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. It is to proclaim that Christ holds all things together. It is to believe that Christ reconciles sinners by making peace through the blood of His cross. All of those nearly unfathomable truths are summed up in the title that Paul uses for the Lord Jesus. He is Christ Jesus the Lord. And Paul emphasizes that this is the truth the Colossians have received. Please note that word received, friends, in verse 6. That sounds pretty nondescript to us, but for Paul, the word received has a significant emphasis. Paul uses this word to describe the reception of authoritative, divine truth. 1 Corinthians 15 is a good example. Paul tells the Corinthians, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received. You can hear the emphasis on the reception of the apostolic Gospel. And then later Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul too received this Gospel truth. He didn't make it up. He received it. Do you see the difference? He didn't conceive of it. He received it. And then he passed it on to others, including Epaphras, who now passed it on to the Colossians. So when Paul speaks in verse 6 that they have received Christ Jesus the Lord, he's reminding them that they stand in this unbroken chain of Christians whose lives rest on a truth that is outside of them. Not a truth that they conceived, a truth that they received. And so you can hear what Paul is driving at, can't you? 
The Colossians did not receive some man-made message about salvation. And neither have they received a half-truth that needs to be supplemented with some other idea. No, the Colossians received the Gospel being the very Word of God. When they received Christ Jesus the Lord, they were embracing the very Word of God revealed supremely in Jesus Christ. That is their confession of faith. That Jesus of Nazareth is both Christ and Lord. Jesus is the promised Redeemer of God's people. And Jesus is the sovereign King of the universe. He is worthy of their faith. He is worthy of their obedience. He is worthy of their praise. You see, Paul is getting at something very important here. Not only for the Colossians, but also for us Christians in the 21st century. When we think of receiving Christ Jesus the Lord, we most often think of a personal decision that has happened in the past. There was a moment in my life when I passed from death to life by God's grace. There was a particular point in time where I, for the first time, submitted to Christ by faith, confessing my sin and trusting in Christ alone to save me. That's how we tend to think about receiving Christ. It's a personal decision that occurred by God's grace at some point in the past. And in one sense, friends, that perspective is absolutely necessary. To be a Christian, you must bow the knee in faith to Christ Jesus the Lord. You must submit your life to Him Trusting in His work alone to save you. If you don't know Christ today as your Lord and Savior, this is where you must begin. With submitting to Him in faith. In confessing that you are not God. In fact, you have sinned against God. And confessing that Jesus alone is God the Son in human flesh who shed His blood for the salvation of sinners. And that He has the authority to run your life according to His Word. That's where you have to start to be a Christian. So receiving Christ Jesus the Lord is certainly a very personal reality that has a definite expression in time. But at the same time, we need to recognize that receiving Christ Jesus the Lord is not solely a decision made in the past. It's not solely a personal decision made in the past. This is so important, friends. Receiving Christ Jesus the Lord also means submitting to His Lordship in the present in an ongoing way. It means I do not have the authority to run my own life. There is a truth outside of me that defines who I am. A truth that I did not create. And a truth, therefore, that I must not neglect or distort. I received the truth. Do you see it? And therefore, I'm accountable now. I'm committed to upholding the truth with my life. I don't know if, if many of you remember the musician Rich Mullins. Anybody ever listen to Rich Mullins? I still listen to Rich Mullins. You should listen to Rich Mullins. He died uh, several years ago, a couple of decades ago, actually. But he had a song called Creed, based on, as you might guess, the Apostles' Creed. And the song is built around the, the refrain, I believe. Mullins sings that refrain over and over, I believe, I believe. But in, this, in the chorus, there's always this one line that sticks with me. Mullins says, referring to the Gospel, I did not make it. No, it is making me. And it is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. I did not make it. It is making me. 
Friends, that's what Paul is getting at in verse 6 when he says, therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord. To receive Christ Jesus the Lord means I recognize there's a truth outside of me that demands my allegiance. A truth that I must not only believe, yes, you have to believe it, but a truth also that I must uphold with my very life. A truth that is making me. Friends, this is astonishing to think about. For 2,000 years, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been confessing together this one truth, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. For 2,000 years. You believe because someone held on to it so that you would hear it and believe it. And on and on it goes back, even to the apostles, down to today. This is the truth we have received by faith. And part of our calling, friends, is to remain faithful to the confession that we have received. We didn't conceive it, we received it. So we have to hold it. Listen, there's a lot of talk, there is a lot of talk in our day about how the church must adapt to the changing world. There's a lot of talk about how the church needs to get on the right side of history. About getting in step with what's now considered to be true. Never mind the fact that what's now considered to be true was considered to be untrue five years ago. A lot of talk about getting on the right side of history. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to stress to you here is that in the midst of such, of our, in the midst of such a world, part of our calling is to hold firm to what we have received. And to say, this doesn't change. So by all means, we need to reach the world with the Gospel. Do you understand? I'm not trying to minimize that. We need to reach the world with the Gospel. We need to pray and we need to labor for sinners to be saved. And at the same time, perhaps maybe for the first time in a century or so in America, we need to recognize that a key portion of our calling is going to be to stand right here and not move Amen. on the Lordship of Christ. And to say to people around us, no, this is what God has revealed. This is what we have received. I didn't make it. I received it. The right side of history is defined by the empty tomb. Not by what man says is true. What man says is true changes every five minutes. And so I'll ask you, are you prepared to stand firm, brothers and sisters? There is a cost to following Jesus. Praise God that the vast majority of our history in this country has been that the cost has not necessarily been all that costly. But perhaps that's changing. And so are you prepared to stand firm? Are you prepared to say, no, this is what God has said. He's revealed it. Received it by faith. Even today, are you seeking to grow in, conv in conviction that what we have received is in fact the unchanging truth of God's Word? Do you pray for conviction? I do. I want to be a person of conviction. We should all be praying for that. It's part of our calling. We did not make this truth. It is making us. The Christ-centered life begins with the confession of Christ's Lordship. That's the first mark. And that should remind each of us of the necessity to hold fast and to stand firm and to simply but clearly not move. That's mark number one. As we continue in verse six, we find the second mark that completes the first. The Christ-centered life continues in the way it began. The Christ-centered life continues in the way it began. Listen again to verse six and notice 
Paul's emphasis on continuing. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In one sense, friends, there's nothing new here. Having reminded the Colossians of their confession, Paul now calls them to continue living out that confession. That's the sense of this command. In fact, you could render the verse, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so keep on living in Him. This is a continual outworking, a continual expression of faith in Jesus Christ. What you confessed on day one, keep at it, Paul says. Don't turn away from it. Keep going. Continue to walk in Christ. That's the command here. Now, what strikes me about verse 6 is that this is the first command Paul has given in the entire letter. It is. It's the first imperative. This is the first, this is what you have to do kind of instruction. First command, first imperative. Think about that, friends. Paul has spent 34 verses primarily focused on doctrine. Paul has written 733 words about truth about what the Colossians should think and understand. I put them into my Word document and did Word Counter. I didn't count them individually. 733 words. And it's only after laying that foundation that Paul begins issuing commands. You see, this is Paul's model for discipleship. It's doctrine first, application second. It's truth first, then commands. And this strikes me as being essentially the opposite of how we try to do discipleship. By and large, we tend to start with commands and then only later fill in the truth. Or, to say it another way, we tend to downplay doctrine because we think by doing so, we're emphasizing application. You even hear it in the way we sometimes derisively refer to doctrine as just quote-unquote head knowledge, as if what a person thinks is somehow related, unrelated to how he or she lives. But friends, Paul's model of discipleship here reminds us that what we think shapes how we live. Not the other way around. What we believe determines how we act. That's why we need to recover Paul's model for discipleship and prioritize the teaching of truth. Listen, sometimes the application of a passage in the Bible is to believe what God says. Not necessarily to do something. Believe what God says. Many times, the aim of a text is to change the way you think. So that you'll think God's thoughts after Him. Is that because the Bible is unconcerned with how we act? No, far from it. The Bible is much more concerned with how you act than you are concerned with how you act. The Bible is always aiming at our actions, always aiming at our hearts. But the way that we get there is through our minds, through what we believe to be true. And that's why, friends, we must never pit application and doctrine against one another as if they were enemies. They're not. Doctrine is the seedbed of application. Doctrine is the soil in which godliness grows. Truth is the foundation for Christ's likeness. And therefore, it's never a waste of time to study the things of God. I know you have a zillion things to do tomorrow. Studying God in the morning is important and relevant for all of those things. It's never a waste of time to study the things of God, to think God's thoughts after Him. Read things about God, friends. Read books about God, about Christ. Read the Bible in order to learn God's thoughts. God's ways. 
Parents, teach your children the truth. By all means, insist that your children obey you, but teach them that obedience matters because God matters. Help them see that their obedience to you is a reflection of learning how to obey God. I mentioned parenting there just as a specific example of what's true of discipleship generally. Every application of the Christian life is important because it's related somehow to God. So teach who God is. Know who God is. It's doctrine. It's truth that gives application a solid foundation. That's what we see here with the Apostle Paul. That's why he spends 733 words on doctrine before he gets to the first imperative. He first reminds the Colossians of the truth that defines them, and only now does he start issuing commands. And what about that command? We ask. Paul tells the Colossians to walk in Christ. You see it there, verse 6. Walk in Christ. What does that mean? Well, we have to read the rest of the letter to answer that question. The remainder of the book is explaining that one command. But at this point, we could summarize the command like this. To walk in Christ means that every area of life should reflect Christ's Lordship. Let me say that again. To walk in Christ means that every area of your life and mine should reflect Christ's Lordship. Every area of life should show the world that I am not the final authority. You talk about countercultural. Every area of life should be demonstrating I don't make the decisions about who I am. God does. I cannot determine who I am. God does. You see it? Christ is the Lord of all. From our personal character to our relationships, from our homes to our workplaces, from our life within the church to our life out in the world, every area of life increasingly submitted to the Lordship of Christ. That's what it means to walk in Him. Of course, that requires more thought, and that's why we're preaching through the entire book, so that we can hit on all those other things as we come to them. But for today... I told you this text was like a preview. Today, I'd like to ask each of us to prayerfully consider just one question that maybe will prime the pump, so to speak, for the ensuing chapters. Just consider this one question from your own life. Is there, right now, an area of my life that I know I am not currently submitting to the Lordship of Christ? Just write that down and ask yourself prayerfully. Is there an area of my life that I know I'm not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Maybe it's in your workplace. Not working hard, not being honest, not following policies because you think they're dumb. Maybe it's in your relationships. Harboring bitterness, not seeking to serve others, insisting on your own way. Listen, we're very good at compartmentalizing our lives, aren't we? We're very good to have the work life, the home life, the church life, and on and on it goes. And as long as my church life is straight, then I'm good. But friends, one of the merciful things about this book is that Paul just won't let you get away with that. He's just not going to let that go. Christ reigns supreme over everything. That's the whole point of chapter 1. Jesus reigns over everything, and that includes you and your work and your home and your relationships and your mindset and your attitude. His Lordship calls for every area of life submitted to Him. Not just one area. So before we go on into all the specifics, which we'll get to over the next several weeks, Perhaps the best place to start is just prayerfully considering that question. Is there an area of my life 
that I know I am not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Ask God to soften your heart. Ask Him to bring conviction over sin. And as He does that, confess that area to Him and seek forgiveness. Listen, even as you are examining your own life, don't forget the Gospel. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the glorious good news. If the Lord brings conviction, then confess it to Him. Bring it in the light and ask someone to help you grow. The Christ-centered life continues in the way it began with submission to the Lordship of Jesus. So if we want to walk in Christ as Paul commands us to, then we have to start here with some honest examination of where we're at. That's mark number two. The third mark takes us into verse seven. The Christ-centered life depends on God's work in the gospel. The Christ-centered life depends on God's work in the gospel. Notice again what Paul writes, verse 7. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught. As we mentioned at the outset, Paul is packing together here a number of vivid images from across the New Testament. Rooted is from the world of agriculture and it speaks to the vital connection between root and fruit. Built up is from the world of architecture and it speaks to the essential role of a foundation in supporting a structure. And established likely comes from the Psalms and speaks to the result of being rooted and built up. You're strengthened in the faith. You're established. So you can hear Paul's essential point in verse 7. To walk in Christ means we maintain this vital connection with the source of our life, our foundation, and our strength. But here's the key point, friends, for understanding verse 7. All of that is dependent on God's work in me. All of that is dependent on God's work in me. Rooted, built up, and established are not imperatives. They're not commands. In fact, God is the one doing them in this verse, in verse 7. God's the one doing these things. You could, you could render verse 7 like this. Uh, having been rooted and being built up in Him and being established in the faith. So you hear the emphasis on God's action. We're not rooting ourselves or building ourselves up. No, it's God who has rooted us in Christ. It's God who's building us up in Christ. And it's God who's establishing us in our faith. You see, living the Christian life calls for an ongoing dependence on God's work. Christians are not a self-made people. We are a dependent people. Our lives depend on God's grace working in us. And yet that dependence does raise a question, doesn't it? Should I just simply do nothing? If I am dependent on God's work, then do I just sit back and wait for God to do what I need Him to do? Are you telling me to just sit back and not do, not do anything? Well, notice the end of verse 7. That little phrase, just as you were taught. I guess it's the middle of verse 7. It's not the end. Just as you were taught. What were the Colossians taught? They were taught the Gospel. The truth of Jesus Christ. So catch what Paul was doing here. Catch how he's answering the question. The Colossians are dependent on God's work But where is God working in the Gospel? 
He's working in the Gospel. The very Gospel they were taught, the very Gospel they have received by faith. And therefore, what the Colossians need to do is to continue in that Gospel. That's that's Paul's application. Continue in that Gospel. As the Colossians gather for worship, confess their sin, love one another, listen to God's Word, labor in prayer, as they live that kind of life, marked by the Gospel, they will find that that is where God is working. Right there. He works in them and through them by the means of the Gospel. And listen, the same holds true for us, friends. We are dependent on God's power to work in our lives. But this dependence is active, not passive. It's an active dependence. I know that sounds paradoxical, but I mean it to. It's an active dependence. We don't simply sit on the sidelines hoping God might do something one day. No, we believe the Gospel today. Trusting that is how God's power works in us. We gather for worship. We read God's Word. We confess our sin. We submit to Scripture. We love one another. Those are the regular rhythms of the Christian life. And what Paul is trying to get each of us to see in this letter is that those regular rhythms are far more important than what we tend to think that they are. This is where God is working. You don't need to look somewhere else. He works through the Gospel. The regular rhythms of the Christian life are the means of knowing God's power. So, do you want to be more firmly rooted in the truth? Do you want your life to be built up in Christ? Do you want your faith to be more established, more strengthened? Then give yourself to the regular rhythms of the Christian life. Gather with God's people. Read His Word. Confess your sin. Labor in prayer. Love one another. Love your neighbor. Those things are far, far more significant than what we tend to think. It's because it's there in that daily outworking of the Gospel that God is rooting and building and establishing His people. Give yourself to those things. The Christ-centered life is dependent on God's work and that should encourage us all the more to hold fast to the Gospel. That's Mark number 3. The fourth and final mark comes at the end of verse 7. And we'll we'll close with this. The Christ-centered life fights for faith with thanksgiving. The Christ-centered life fights for faith with thanksgiving. Notice the final phrase of verse 7. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here, Paul shifts from the work God does in us to the work God expects from us. From those four phrases, rooted, built up, established, and thanksgiving, thanksgiving is the only active one that we're expected to do. Okay? So Paul's shifting from God's work to what we're we're called to do. As Christians, we're called to abound in thanksgiving. The idea is to overflow. To be abundantly thankful. For Paul... Thanksgiving to God is an offensive weapon in the Christian life. That's what he wants you to see. Thanksgiving is an offensive weapon in the Christian life. Thanksgiving is part of how we fight for faith. And that's because Thanksgiving is an act of worship. When I am thankful to God for who He is and what He has done, I am offering God my worship. And by offering God my worship, I am orienting my life away from myself and towards Him. 
And as I orient my life away from myself and towards Him, it leads to faithfulness. It leads to perseverance. So, so notice the progression. Thanksgiving leads to worship. Worship leads to faithfulness. And faithfulness leads to perseverance. Which, I might add, is the very things that the Colossians need, isn't it? They need to stand firm. The point, friends, is that Paul's call for thanksgiving is not a throwaway statement. It's not a religious-sounding platitude. Thanksgiving is a powerful weapon in the fight for faith. In fact, just to drive this home to you, I want you to notice how Paul includes thanksgiving in every chapter of the letter. This is striking to me. Every single chapter, Paul emphasizes thanksgiving. Chapter 1, verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Chapter 2, verse 7, our text, abounding in thanksgiving. Chapter 3, verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And then chapter 4, verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Every single chapter. Thanksgiving is there. And this is just Colossians. If you look at Paul's other letters, you'll find the same pattern. It's a mark of Paul's ministry. Thanksgiving is a divinely appointed, a divinely appointed weapon in the fight for faith. Thanksgiving leads to worship. Worship leads to faithfulness. And faithfulness leads to perseverance. And so, we ask ourselves, am I thankful? Are we a thankful church? Are you a Christian who is marked by gratitude? I'll be honest, I am not as thankful as I ought to be. Sometimes I think I have the unspiritual gift of cynicism. I'm not as thankful as I ought to be. But I want to grow. I want to be abounding in thanksgiving. And I'm sure that you do as well. So let me just give you one final encouragement from verse 7 that I think will help us learn to be thankful. Notice that thanksgiving comes at the end of the verse. Only after Paul has mentioned all of God's work on our behalf. You see it? God rooted them in Christ. God is building them up. God is establishing them in the faith. And only at the end does Paul say, be thankful. I take that to be the key to abounding in thanksgiving. I can't make myself feel thankful. (laughs) But I can fix my eyes on who God is and what He has done in Christ. And as I behold that glorious gospel truth, I have the reason for thanksgiving. There are days when it's hard to give thanks. I'm sure we would all admit to that. But on any day, the gospel is enough to produce thanksgiving, isn't it? It is. The Christ-centered life fights for faith with thanksgiving. And so I pray God would make us a thankful people by looking to Him. Well, I hope that we've been encouraged this morning from this central passage God has given us everything we need to live a Christ-centered life. That's, that's the Christian life. He's given us everything we need. We've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so may we hold fast to the truth. We are dependent on God's work, so may we continue in the Gospel. And over all of this, we have reason for thanksgiving since God has given us the fullness of His grace in His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us Today we ask, help us to hold fast to the truth. Help us to stand firm 
Father, on the Lordship of Christ. Help us, Father, to continue in the way that we have begun, walking by faith in the Lord Jesus. Help us to depend upon Your work by being actively dependent on the regular rhythms of the Christian life. And help us, Father, to fight for faith by being thankful. Fix our eyes upon You, God. Help us, each of us, Father, is prone to think about ourselves. Help us to look away from ourselves and to focus on You that we might grow in the faith that honors You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Joe, please stand. Let's sing together.